Ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res. My name is Josh Herring. Here at What's the Res, we are dedicated to holding the conversation about the ongoing resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, we are going to be uh, looking at the uh, second Coolidge Debate League resolution. Uh, here at uh, in our area, we've got uh, the second Coolidge Debate League at Luddy Schools tournament coming up on November 14th. So this episode should hopefully post uh, well before that tournament, about two weeks before the tournament. And it's our hope that we can uh, provide resources for people who are preparing to compete on that resolution. So I am very excited uh, to introduce our guests today. Uh, we're joined today by Tyler O'Neill. Tyler is the senior editor for PJ Media. He's the author of Making Hate Pay, The Corruption of the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's a good friend from years ago. We went to college together, and I'm really excited that he can bring some of his uh, journalistic expertise to the show. Tyler, welcome to What's the Res? Hey, thanks. Glad to be here, Josh. Great to great to uh, chat, and it's it's been a while, so uh, re- really Excellent. glad to reconnect. <laughs> Oh, uh, Tyler, tell us a little bit about where you've gone over the years. I mean, I know we we were in Galloway once upon a time and made our <laughs> way through Hillsdale and survived Hell Week and finals and all those things. But uh, wh- what's your life been like uh, post college? Yeah, so I've I've been around the block a little bit in DC. I spent quite quite a while now in in journalism. I did a little dalliance in fundraising that taught me a good deal, but. Uh, yeah, I've been at PJ Media the past four years and really loved it, thrived, uh, risen, you know, from just being a contributor to being now a senior editor. And I love, you know, getting into political, hot button political issues and doing some research and hopefully having a more nuanced position than a lot of people on, on either side. But I very much do usually fall down on, on the right, you know, the conservative side of the ledger. So, uh, but yeah, in in the past few years, I really delved into the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is this nonprofit that uh, started with very noble intentions and had had a lot of really great, important historic successes early on. And even today, it, it still does some good work, but it's really become an engine of political warfare from the left. And it, it takes conservative and Christian organizations and brands them hate groups, putting them on lists with uh, the Ku Klux Klan and organizations like that. And it's, uh, it, I would consider what it does to be a form of defamation as well as a scam uh, that really should, you know, uh, that, that would be interesting to have a RICO case considered. But uh, they're... They have this very fascinating history. I went, I went and did a deep dive and wrote a book about it called Making Hate Pay, 
the corruption of the conser- of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And, you know, I trace the, the founding, the founder of the group, Morris Dees, and show how he's this consummate fundraiser, but also uh, rather nefarious and sleazy at times. So the SPLC became notorious for bankrupting the Ku Klux Klan, which was actually a distraction from its original mission. But then it it became this folk force fighting hate groups. And then in order to keep raising money, it would continually define hate group uh, encompassing more and more mainstream organizations. So nowadays you have organizations like the Family Research Council, Alliance for Defending Freedom, very mainstream organizations. And then the SPLC's hate group accusation actually inspired a terrorist attack against one of these, uh, the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C. And a lot of, you know, Senate Democrats have brought up numerous times the SPLC attack on Alliance Defending Freedom. And we, we remember the dogma lives loudly within you attack on Amy Coney Barrett, but uh, also notorious was uh, Senator Al Franken going after her and comparing Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a you know conservative Christian, very mainstream uh, legal nonprofit that has represented many cases before the Supreme Court and won many times uh, in the past decade. They, uh, you know, they're, they're a very mainstream group, but Al Franken decided to compare them to Paul Pot, the notorious Cambodian dictator who wiped out a fourth of his people and uh, set the year back to zero. So very, some very big uh, political warfare from the SPLC. And I wrote the book so that we can tell, you know, actually this ties in with Section 230. There's a lot of big tech uh, companies that have considered the SPLC reliable. And I, you know, I'm kind of writing the book to scream from the rooftops that this group is not to be trusted. <laughs> well, that's, that's a, that's certainly a hugely important part of journalism. I, I think I've some of the books, some of the most interesting kind of current events books I've read over the years have been those kind of larger projects that uh, journalists will get into and they'll discover there's a bigger story here that they can tell in 500 or 800 or 1200 words and it grows into a book. Um, and I think that's just a, that's absolutely fascinating because I've definitely seen in the debate world, especially, it's very common for students to simply find a fact on the internet, cite it by last name and year, and to run that fact uh-huh. as if it is a thoroughly credible uh name and source. And the judges typically are forced to simply assume that that fact is credible. Uh, and certainly, I, it's it's a fascinating thing, I think, that we, for all that, we live in a time where uh, we have the most advanced scientific education in terms of like the most people studying science at the highest levels ever recorded in human history. We have a hugely instinctive, reflexive assumption that anything that is stated by an official group must be true. Like there, there, there's this sort of presumption of honesty uh, that it sounds like the SPLC is certainly uh, participating in or taking advantage of uh, from from what you were just explaining to us. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. They're you know they're the one that has this list of quote unquote hate groups, and so therefore you know companies like Amazon, you know Amazon has this charity uh, platform called Amazon Smile, where if you opt in a certain percentage of your purchases go to nonprofits that you choose. It's a great idea. Apparently it's, it's actually not the one of their biggest programs, but 
it's a good program. And they use the SPLC to determine who can and can't receive money through the Amazon Smile program. And lo and behold, the SPLC has actually made a lot of money from it. And their, you know, their ideological opponents, whom they list as hate groups, have been excluded from it. So they don't make any money. And it's not a not an even playing field. Um, but that, that's one of the many, many things that alerted me uh, to the SPLC's influence. And one one of the things that was even more scary was in Michigan, actually, uh, where you know the school we we attended is located. Uh, the attorney general released a decided to launch a hate crimes unit, and using the hate cr- and when they launched the hate crimes unit, uh, Dana Nessel said, "Oh, and we're we're specifically targeting hate groups," and she cited the SPLC. And it just so happens that there are, you know, conservative Christian organizations in uh, in Michigan that have nothing that are nothing like the Ku Klux Klan that don't spread hate, but that advocate for things like religious liberty. And the SPLC has decided to call them hate groups. Here you actually had the government of Michigan saying we are going to send, you know, we're setting up a surveillance apparatus to go after hate in our state. And we are sending the cops to monitor these groups that are described as hate groups by the SPLC. So the uh, American Freedom Law Center actually filed a very powerful First Amendment lawsuit to curb this very massive abuse from, from my perspective that the Michigan government had. And that's not to say that there aren't legitimate reasons that they could launch a hate crimes unit. You know, hate crimes are a thing. Um, but they need to make sure that their sources are reliable and the SPLC is very skewed, very slanted and in artificially inflates its hate group numbers. So that is fascinating. It takes me back to a uh, unit I taught in my logic class years ago about the genetic fallacy, where if you have one evil thing and you simply kind of create guilt by association with other things, you actually have, not proven that the other things are guilty. You've simply associated them together. And people tend to assume that because we know object A is bad, that objects B, C, and D <laughs> must also be bad because they all happen to be in the same place. It's, it's rhetorically powerful. It takes a very attentive audience to notice when somebody has kind of pulled that sort of trick. But it's, a, uh, it's definitely a rhetorical trick that, that is not good reasoning. Uh, so, well. Um, Tyler, let me ask you one other question before we kind of get into our resolution and uh, discussion today. Uh, you're, yeah. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading your articles over the years. Uh, you, you usually, I, I especially enjoy being able to uh, tell people, hey, I know the guy who wrote this and I know he does good work. <laughs> so I can stand by the research that he did that went into this piece. Uh, but your your path in journalism has been a bit different than a, another uh, friend of ours. I'm thinking of Liz White, and she's kind of moved in more mainstream journalistic circles over the years. But your route has been towards specifically conservative journalism. Um, tell us a little bit about a little bit about why you chose to go the route to work for companies that are specifically trying to do conservative journalism as opposed to. Uh, maybe the sort of the complete non-biased uh, rhetoric that a lot of journalists will use, but that that's not been the kind of group that you tend to write for. Tell us a little about that about that journey. 
Yeah. So I, uh, you know, out of college, I took a few internships. Uh, first, I did an internship with National Review, uh, which was on the conservative side. And then I did an internship with the uh, National Journalism Center. And they placed me with the Washington Free Beacon. So I've I've kind of always been in these circles. I think it's it's important to note, you know, and you you're very right to say that, you know, this is this is conservative journalism. This isn't the, uh, you know, the the legacy. What what I like to call the legacy media. A lot of people call the mainstream media. Um, some of us on the conservative journalism side hope that uh, we can be part of the mainstream. So I like to use a little bit more of a specific term. With the legacy media, you get a lot of these very big outlets that, and and generally, you know, they have worked hard to establish credibility. I don't want to, uh, you know, deride them entirely, um, but they've they've very t- much taken a, a left wing bias, and you can see most recently with the Hunter Biden email scandal, which is very. I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but I think I think it's an important issue, and I think there's been a lot more co- corroboration than a lot of uh, ma- legacy media outlets like to acknowledge. But they've kind of strayed away from that. You even had National Public Radio saying they weren't going to cover the story at all uh, because they think that it's a distraction. And th- they claim that it's been disproven. But if you actually dig into it, it hasn't been. But it's very uncomfortable for the the left-wing narrative because, look, I was I was never Trump in 2016. I understand why Trump can be frustrating for people uh but at at the end of the day you know you're looking at trump or biden and i i also support you know if you if you support a third party don't don't think i'm i'm poo-pooing that option but um, most most likely you know 99 of the chance is going to be either trump or biden and i think that biden sets off a lot of red flags that a lot of the legacy media are just not willing to cover and i think a lot of the legacy media props up this appearance of objectivity, but when you actually look at the, how they cover stories, who they quote, who they don't quote, uh, you know, they're citing the SPLC a lot. Like uh, last year, the New York Times, the Palm Beach Post, the Miami Herald, all ran essentially at uh, SPLC and uh, Council on American Islamic Relations care a press release as a story trying to force uh, the Trump Hotel Mar-a-Lago to cancel a group with Act for America, uh, cancel an event with Act for America, which is a conservative uh, national security organization. Uh, I happen to know Act for America well. I know, you know, that they're not a hate group, but the SPLC calls them a hate group. Thanks to the New York Times running the story, even Mar-a-Lago decided to cave and cancel the event. So what we have, you know, I'd, I'd love to work more with the legacy media. I think it would be wonderful to see them move in a more balanced direction and be more willing to publish conservative voices. Uh, but when, when you saw the New York Times decide to retract Tom Cotton's uh, article about the riots that happened this summer, um, that was a painful example of just how biased they are on one side. Like Tom Cotton, if you actually read the article, as opposed to the the wrongful smears about the article, Tom Cotton was very clear. He supports First Amendment rights and the right to protest. 
and he wasn't condemning people who were peacefully protesting after the death of George Floyd. He was com- condemning those who went about and engaged in violent uh, destruction of property, theft, uh, in some cases, burning down buildings that have ended up killing people. Like This is serious stuff. And calling for the National Guard to bring order in those specific cases where you've seen huge amounts of destruction, even even death and, and rioting and looting, like that is a fair position. It's a nuanced position. But the New York Times uh, took the position that that was advocating violence against protesters. And therefore, you know, the the uh, head of the op-ed department resigned because the the back the backlash and the outrage became so loud. So I think, you know, I I'd love, you know, I don't I don't want to be siloed on the conservative journalism side. I want to be as mainstream a journalist as possible. But I think that uh, given the way that I see the world, there's not a lot of room for people like me in the legacy in a lot of legacy media circles. And I'd love for that to change. But this is the world we live in. <laughs> it is. I, I think one of the things I've most appreciated about uh, the school I've been at for the last, uh, goodness, eight years now uh, is uh, conservatives who insist not on bemoaning the fact that uh, mainstream or progressive or leftist folks, take your adjective of choice, uh, tend to have a lot of the institutions. They don't just kind of waste their time in shedding tears about that. Instead, they go out and start new institutions or different institutions that uh, help to create a bit more of that balance that uh, we might wish was there in some of the more, uh, I like your phrase, legacy media. Uh, I, I think I might uh, need to, I need to borrow that phrase. Uh, but there are certainly plenty of excellent private schools down in my area that definitely have that sort of slant uh, in them as well. But uh, Thales Academy doesn't, we we intentionally try to never speak negatively about other schools. Instead, we just try to be the best school that we can with the curriculum that we stand by. And that tends to look a little more conservative than some other places. Uh, but we find that that really is a uh, a better option than to kind of go to war against other places. Uh, so I just, I hear some echoes of that in what you were describing. So I, I appreciate the work that you're doing and hope that uh, it continues to go well. Well, let, let's yeah, get you. on to uh, our, our actual topic for today. So the uh, second Coolidge debate tournament for this year is going to be looking at the resolution resolved. Congress should repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, so uh, I've been looking at this a little bit over the last couple of weeks to help get our students prepped on this. Uh, so we've got middle schoolers and high schoolers that will be preparing to have this debate on November 14th. and. From what I can tell so far, Section 230 is really significant. Uh, It was passed in the mid-1990s, so before the internet was nearly as big, before there was even such a thing as social media, there was already a general framework. The uh, Section 230 establishes a few principles that uh, the government is in favor of not over-regulating the internet. It is in favor of protecting free speech, but... It also wants to remove any disincentives uh, for platforms to uh, control the material that is published on them. So that has since been interpreted to allow major social media platforms to kind of create frameworks to define what is and is not permissible to be published on their sites. 
those uh, because of Section 230, those uh, those companies uh, like social, uh, like Facebook or YouTube and so on, uh, they're not legally liable for the material that's posted on them. And they also can remove content without violating First Amendment free speech rights. Uh, Tyler, anything, would you add anything to kind of a general understanding of Section 230 before we kind of get into some more specific questions? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that was, you covered it rather well. Um, I think the, the most important thing I would add is that Section 230 is a brief, you know, statement in a broader law, and there has been debate about how it should be interpreted. And therefore, like, you know, I, I think the, the resolution is a great one for for debates, uh, but I think it's it's more complicated as to whether or not, you know, what Section 230 means is actually up for debate. So that's a, it throws a wrench into the situation a little bit. I think so. It's definitely a place where uh, affirmative teams will need to just pay attention to how they define define uh, the the words of the resolution. And on the one hand, it's relatively straightforward, but if teams have the time to dig into some of the case law or some of the ways this has been applied, you certainly could find a, you could argue rather about a particular interpretation of section 230 as section 230. That could lead to some different arguments. Um, Well, Tyler, help us with this. I know you focused uh, in part, we we got together in this because I read your uh, recent article about the uh, Facebook censoring uh, one of our favorite uh, satire sites, the Battle <laughs> of the um, What role does Section 230 play in terms of governing social media? What, what, can you, what can you help us know about that? Yeah, so Section 230 is pivotal for social media. It's, and it's an interesting, like, I, I can really understand both sides of the argument on this because you want social media companies to not be held liable for the content that they post. But at the same time, Section 230 does allow social media companies to engage in some form of hiding and removing content in order to maintain certain standards. And you know, debating those standards is, is a huge question, especially when you have groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center that I'd say muddy the waters. Um, but you know, they have they have and they don't always apply their standards equally. So what what we're starting to see, and it's both on the right and the left, uh, there are a lot of people who are complaining that uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter have too much discretion in what they promote or what they allow on their platforms. And so, you know, on, on the one hand, you get people who are like, oh, the Babylon Bee is fake news. People are going to trust the Babylon Bee if it's allowed on Facebook. Therefore, you know, there should be limits to it on Facebook. Maybe Facebook should have uh, a notice on there that says this is satire or this is labeled satire. And in, in one case, Snopes actually came out and said the Babylon Bee's articles don't rise to the level of satire because they're hateful or s- some such thing like this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I find that kind of argument oh, to be outrageous. That, that but is just, that's it's, it's an interesting question. Yes. I mean, if any of our listeners have at all read the Babylon Bee, and honestly, if you haven't, uh, do yourself a treat. Go check out the Babylon Bee. I'm assuming their website is babylonbee.com. Uh, uh, they write some of the wittiest satire and they at least started 
they're they're not that old. They're only a couple of years old. They started uh, inside uh, at least the circles that I run in as a I mean, they they are joking evangelical church culture. So uh, I grew up and remained Southern Baptist, and like it's like they just took a rifle and sniped my church culture like beautiful, <laughs> perfect. And then they expanded a little bit further out and they began, uh, really, they have some great satire on the Republican Party. And uh, they then they expanded. They have some great satire on the Democratic Party. And they, they are doing exactly the work that satire is supposed to do. They're pointing at the ridiculous things in the world that, honestly, those who are in those particular cultures tend to overlook. And it's in showing us just how ridiculous they are that it makes us take a step back and think, man... I'm part of this ridiculous thing. Maybe we ought to do something a little bit different than we're currently doing. Like it, 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 it has that sort of effect and it's, it's really funny. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it really is. And one of the, the one that got Facebook attacking the Babylon Bee recently was they were mocking Senator Maisie Hirono, who asked some very notorious questions of uh, Supreme court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, she was very, very hostile and, you know, I, I think Maisie Hirono is loved among liberal circles for being as aggressive as she is. But uh, the Babylon Bee decided to go with a Monty Python joke saying that, oh, Maisie Hirono wants to weigh Amy Coney Barrett to see if she weighs as much as a duck, which would mean that she floats and therefore she's made of wood and therefore she's a witch. Because what do you do with witches? You burn them. This is one of the best Monty Python sketches is this totally nonsensical argument about witches. Uh, and you know the Babylon Bee decided to mock it, saying, mock Maisie Hirono. And Facebook decided that this was inciting violence. And it's not clear whether Facebook thinks it's inciting violence against Maisie Hirono or whether Facebook thinks it's inciting violence against Amy Coney Barrett or whether Facebook thinks it's inciting violence against ducks. Like... <laughs> <laughs> It really doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and I've tried to to understand what they're what they're saying, and it just. But they decided, you know, the Babylon Bee questioned it, and Facebook decided, yes, we are we are going to demonetize you because this is inciting violence. And anyway, it, that that's one of the situations where, you know, I, I think Congress had a certain goal with Section Two Thirty, allowing these uh, these big tech platforms, social media, the internet broadly, not to be held liable for their users' content, and also to remove certain forms of content that you know we we as Americans have certain norms against. And I think you know it's it's an important balance because you want companies to be able to remove certain things, uh, but it's very easy to abuse that. So there, there's a lot of fodder for, for both sides because you don't want the internet to be censoring people and silencing them. But at the same time, you don't want the internet to be spreading things that are entirely false or that are you know, malicious against somebody. You know, libel and slander are serious concerns. So you know, how, how do you balance those competing interests? I think that's a great question, and it really is the question at the heart of this resolution, at the heart of this debate. Uh, Tyler, I think you outlined those those pieces really well. I mean, the the intent behind this law is to balance those different forces, uh, because on the one hand, left to 
uh, left to their worst uh, or maybe their basest interest. Uh, it, it's the the when the internet is purely about making money, uh, it's a pretty ugly, gross thing. Uh, that that frees the the worst impulses of people to publish content. Uh, but on the other hand, so so companies do need to kind of recognize, ha, you're a bad actor in our space in our virtual space, so we're gonna take your stuff down. But on the and and not be liable for that. But on the other hand, it empowers companies to be able to police things. And now I think it's also significant, uh, maybe for people looking for an argument on the neg, uh, just to note that when this, I think the year is 1996, I didn't write that down on my show notes, but I think this law was passed in 1996. Uh, there are very few avenues for monetizing the internet at that point. So uh, I'm saying, yes. but today, so many companies are making so much money because they have an internet presence. And it really creates uh, the, the internet, the, the free market of the internet has grown up since this law was passed. So I think there could be a good argument on the neg to say that really this law was passed uh, before it, this law is not really concerned with actively protecting the ability of businesses or people to sell their products. It's, its concern is placed differently. So what we need is a law that protects free speech, but also protects has a stronger protection of a free market impulse. And then with the Babylon B story, uh, you have... I, I don't know how much of their revenue comes from Facebook, but I think it's a huge amount because that's where they really started when their company got, became big. And so for Facebook to demonetize them is not only a company kind of, it's not just a slap on the wrist. Like that's a substantial amount of their revenue that they might not be able to generate in other ways. Uh, so like, I think that's also kind of in the mix here. Um Right, because companies are relying on the exposure that they get on social media um, to make their decisions. Like social media has changed the game to that large of an extent. So when Facebook decides that they're going to demonetize the Babylon Bee, and I don't know exactly what their revenue, but I do know they get about 70% of their traffic from Facebook, um, which, you know, Facebook is a humongous part of the Babylon Bee's operation. So you get a lot of places like the Babylon Bee, like PJ Media to some extent, we've started doing subscription content in order to, you know, have a closer relationship to users that doesn't go through the mediation of Facebook. But I think the subscription model has a lot of flaws. And, you know, not everybody wants to pay for certain forms of information, certain forms of content. And there's this long-standing approach, I think, that I grew up with and many others did that stuff on the internet is free and you should be able to find something uh, that you can read and educate yourself for free. And so therefore you get the ad, the ad model, uh, which is how a lot of these internet companies actually make money. But if you only do the ad model, then everything is based on traffic and you get this push toward being more and more sensational and not having quite as much good uh, research and truth in the things that you have. Because the point is to just draw people, draw eyeballs to your site. So you have to have all these balances. And when you make rules that change the, the game for Facebook, Twitter, 
for YouTube, for these, these platforms, you're also shaking up the way that the market works and the way that people are uh, incentivized to put their content out there and the way that they make money. So these are, you know, on, on the neg side, any, any, you know, striking down section 230 is going to open up a whole can of worms because suddenly you're, you're going to have to have the government engaging more closely with how tech companies make these decisions. And if you've noticed, Facebook has launched ads saying they want more regulation. They essentially want Section 230 to be weakened um, because then you get what's called regulatory capture, where the company that has a huge impact on the market already can set the rules of the game by working with the regulators. And then the government actually ends up helping somebody like Facebook to prevent uh to prevent alternatives from from coming up, to prevent competitors. So there are a lot of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of conservatives in particular are anti-Section 230 because they think that these companies have too much freedom right now. But if you get rid of Section 230 and if you want government to engage with more regulation on these companies, you could be opening the door to entrenching Facebook and Twitter even more than they already are and giving them perversely more of the power that you want to take away. Um, and for anybody who is listening to that and wants the uh, actual, the, the part of section 230 that will be helpful to making an argument there, I would direct you to subsection two, where you have a whole bunch of policy statements where you literally written into section 230, we have the line that it is the policy of the United States federal government to, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, essentially respect the lesser level of regulation and the free market uh, ingenuity that led to the birth of the internet. Uh, no, nobody really created the internet. It was sort of a, a happy accident of a whole bunch of technological things that developed simultaneously that then through linking technology, discovering, wow, a lot can happen when we can connect computers together. And the internet kind of grew up in this space that something of a was something of a wild, wild west of unregulated territory 25 years ago. Um, now, but that, and so Section 230 is sort of a protection of that. Uh, now, Tyler, that the idea of regulatory capture, I had not thought about that as applied to this. That's really interesting because I know there are groups that are trying to uh, compete with Facebook and Facebook is such a behemoth in the internet space that it's almost impossible to come up with. I'm thinking of uh, Jordan Peterson's kind of spinoff ThinkSpot that was an attempt to have a, a different social media, but it was... When I tried to join it, it was really lame. <laughs> and it too suffered. You're, I think you're right about the, the harms of the subscription model. I know um, on our podcast, we tried a subscription model a year ago, and it was way too much work for the seven subscribers that we had. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, and we have, we have over, we have, we're coming up on 2,000 followers across different platforms for, of our show. But those followers are, by and large, broke high school students who want to listen to a debate <laughs> podcast, but they have no interest in paying for a debate podcast. So I messing with the, I think that's interesting, interesting in part, because if we mess with the, re, the current framework that kind of underpins the way the internet works, we could accidentally break this really cool, mostly free thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, and that's, I, I follow people on, you know, I, I tend to be on the conservative side of things, but there, there are very loud voices on both sides of this issue on the conservative side, because there are people who are like, oh no, Facebook is cracking down on conservative content. We, we have to prevent this from happening. This is the end of the world. And I mean, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I'm also sympathetic to the other side, which is this group called the Competitive Enterprise Institute is really good on this. Uh, they have all this information that's like, no, Section 230 is a lifeline. We need Section 230. It, it, it defends you know, the, the free and open system of the internet. So whatever replaces Section 230, if there, if there can be a better replacement, has to, has to take, into, take these things into account. And I think we're, we're on the cusp of perhaps making a very big mistake because uh, neither the left nor the right fully understands uh, the repercussions of getting rid of Section 230 that could go negative. At the same time, you know, Section 230 is not is not particularly strong on some of the things that people want. So, like uh, Clarence Thomas, and I mean, this is this is something for the AF side, perhaps. Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court justice, wrote a concurring opinion. There was a case that was going to come up with Section 230 and discuss it. The Supreme Court decided not to take up the case, but Clarence Thomas said that courts have long emphasized non-textual arguments when interpreting Section 230, leaving questionable precedent in their wake, adopting the too common practice of reading extra immunity into statutes where it does not belong, courts have relied on policy and purpose arguments to grant sweeping protection to internet platforms. And what, what Thomas is saying there is that Section 230 does not lay out exactly how things are supposed to work, partially because, as you noted, and you got the date right, I was 1996, that the act was passed, uh, they, you know, when Congress wrote this, they couldn't have envisioned the internet as it is today. So it's possible that we need new ground rules. And right now, the Trump administration, you know, the federal, the federal, oh no, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, oh yes, yes, um, yes. is working on drafting uh, rules, regulations that would explain what Section 230 means and kind of give give good ground rules. And I think that, you know, we we talk a lot on the conservative side on how the bureaucracy is too big. But I think that having these FCC regulations in place could really help explain how it should work. And then if Congress doesn't like that, and Congress is very free to disagree and then pass a law that says, no, FCC, you're wrong. This is the way that it should be. Uh, I, I would per personally much prefer Congress to pass that law first, if possible. But I think getting that agreement in America's, in our current partisan environment would not be easy. <laughs> no, it certainly would not be. I, mean, I, I know everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath for about 10 more days, I think, at this point. We've got, uh, we're recording on October 25th, so however many days before Election Day, to see what's going to happen with the House, the Senate, and the presidency, it seems like it's all kind of up in the air. I think you're right. That that's a uh, that's a helpful. You, you gave us some great uh, sources there. Uh, I think that's really interesting to consider what the FCC could do as far as kind of proposing a a more contemporary framework that is taking into a better account what I know some folks have called the Internet 2.0 as opposed to its earliest edition. Um, 
You know, one thing that comes to mind, uh, I, I used to be a much bigger proponent of like no regulation ever. Uh, until I went to a conference <laughs> a few years ago and uh, we had to read some Hayek for the conference and that conference changed my mind on this. Uh, and I, I'm a pretty conservative guy. I really don't like unnecessary rules and typically governmental regulations tend to have a lot of bloat. They, they try to, they, they just go too far usually. Uh, but Friedrich Hayek makes a really strong argument uh, about the, what he thinks government should do positively. Uh, and he was at least the first uh, really strong libertarian thinker that I've read who gave a really good case for positive regulation. Uh, and he, he used the metaphor of a referee and arguing like that a good referee who understands and applies the rules is necessary for strong athletic competition. I found that pretty helpful because I've, I've been at soccer matches where we have really <laughs> bad referees and it just creates terrible games. Um, elbows are flying, noses are bleeding, shins are shattered. I mean, it's a bad game when the referees don't police the level of physical contact, much less if, or if the refs are favoring one side over the other. I mean, I think everybody listening has probably been at a game where you're like, you're pretty sure the refs got a cake delivered by the visiting team <laughs> or something before the game started. And but what we for to have an effective game, you need fair, impartial referees that set up the ground rules that everybody can operate inside of. I think if Section 230 either is doing that currently, that could be a great affirmative argument. Or if we're talking about a revision to Section 230, that could be a great uh, affirmative argument to say we are not we. Uh, or I'm sorry, it could be a great um, negative argument to say what we need to do is not we don't need to repeal Section 230. We recognize its flaws. We propose revising Section 230. I think there could be room for a negative argument to uh, to uh, encourage that option. Um, well, Tyler, let me ask you one more. Th We've talked yeah. a lot about Facebook on, on this one. Um, and uh, in the reading I did this past week, I discovered that uh, President Trump issued an executive order directly concerning Section 230 back in May when Twitter started tagging his tweets with a warning label so that anyone who hovers over President Trump's tweet would get, be warned that the information in this tweet is probably <laughs> false. Uh, and I, there have since been, I, I don't know of others, but I, I and I've, I've seen lots of speculation. Um, I don't have the mathematical background to know how, how possible this is, but I can easily imagine uh, YouTube being owned by Google uh, very easily manipulating their algorithms to elevate certain messages and make it harder to find other video titles through their search engines. Uh, so all that to say, uh, in your view, uh, do, do you see this as a widespread social media problem with social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, Spotify, and probably four or five new ones that I don't know about yet? Um, are they using their community norms and search algorithms to elevate certain messages and suppress others? Is that an ongoing kind of big problem across these platforms? So I don't, I don't have the internals, but I would, I would say yes. I mean, we've seen, um, so last year, I, I believe it was last year, it might've been two years ago now, um, there were abortion videos. So if you would, if you would search in YouTube for abortion, you would get some pro-life videos as well as some very pro-abortion videos. Then uh, one of the, you know, one, one of these left-leaning um, bloggers complained uh, outspokenly to 
to YouTube about this and suddenly it changed and she was getting all pro abortion videos and she was very happy about this. But that, that makes some of us, you know, who are some of us who are pro-life, but also those who want more free speech on these platforms to just cringe and think, wait, so are they actually suppressing content or not? And a lot of these companies, they have plausible deniability. They also have, you know, tailored trends, tailored search results, a lot of things that they can get away with a lot of stuff that we don't even know about. And so this guy, um, Robert Epstein, he is a, a PhD uh, psychologist. He has studied the effects of search engine manipulation. And he has found that uh, you could potentially shift millions of votes based on the automatic results that come up in Google for a search for a candidate's name. And, you know, un unfortunately, you know, Google results are not uniform for everyone. Uh, Google gives tailored results for various people for various reasons. And I think, you know, I, I don't I don't want to accuse Google necessarily of anything, but there have been many disturbing news stories and disturbing statements from Google executives that they want to prevent another 2016, by which, you know, they don't necessarily mean they don't want Republicans ever to win an election. What they mean, I think, is that they think 2016, for whatever reason, was particularly negative, and they want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Uh, but, you know, th that is kind of hair-raising that you have. And that's the thing about these these platforms. They are run by real people. So, you know, they they have biases. And if you approach things and you think that Trump is literally Hitler or maybe less than that, maybe you think he's he's a racist, xenophobe, like whatever. I I personally don't. I think his policies don't support that kind of a characterization. But a lot of people do think that. And there's a certain bubble that you can easily get into that reinforces these ideas. And then when you start seeing him getting a lot of votes, uh, you might be highly, highly tempted to mess with the system in a way that hurts him. And we really have to be vigilant. I mean, I, I think this is also a cultural problem because you could have changes to Section 230 that will make the internet a perfectly fair place. And yet you have human actors in the internet, in these companies that have control that can still pull the levers for or against people. And if they think that somebody is a threat to democracy, they think that they're the end of the world, then they're going to have a high incentive to act that way. So I think part of the problem that we have in America today is that we have this culture where we really don't trust one another. And we think that if the candidate that we oppose wins the election, it's game over. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of liberals would do well to remember that, you know, America is not at the end of its rope right now. And a lot of conservatives would do well to remember that despite Obama and a lot of the things that really, really frustrated me about his presidency, America was not over at the end of his presidency either. Uh, so we have to, we have to be, uh, you know, we have to hold ourselves back a little bit and think, well, okay, I may really dislike this candidate. I may think that this candidate is the end of the world, but the rule, having fair rules of the road is more important than one candidate winning or losing. Uh, I think 
as as a society, that needs to be the thing we have to get back to. And that's really hard because right now we have, you know, we have these bubbles that we both both sides get into. And it's very hard to escape the embattled mentality. We have our our identities in politics and we tend to think that the other side is a is an existential threat to those identities. And there's there's some truth in in various things, but we, we have to keep things in perspective and remember that you know the rules of the game matter and fairness overall matters, even when our candidate loses. I'd say there, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I, I appreciate your balance uh, uh, in those different views there. Tyler, before we uh, wrap this episode up, as a uh, currently working journalist, uh, uh, I do want to pick your brain on uh, this kind of career advice because uh, I teach in a high school and we have uh, I have various students over the years who have they either like writing uh, articles or they see themselves as future journalists or they're involved in kind of a school news show sort of thing. Would you, do you yeah. have any advice for uh, current high school students who think they might be interested in going into journalism? Yeah, so <laughs> I have a lot. The journalism is a very difficult field right now. So I kind of ended up, you know, I, I tried actually to get out of it and do something else, but I was too obsessed with researching and writing articles and doing that that I actually got. I got roped back in and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good at editing too. So I was able to grow that way, but opportunities in journalism are, you know, it's, it's a field that's very easy to get into, but it's not very easy to grow and reach, you know, reach a good stable position. And it's, it's a very changing market right now too. So I would just encourage I think that journalism is a good option and people should think about it and consider it. But I think you should also look at other things. Uh, don't expect to make a lot of money in journalism. That's, that's one of, one of the struggling things right now uh, across the industry is that, you know, th this tension between uh, having a traffic based model or having a subscription model ads versus subscription. And right now, there's a lot of confusion between between that and the way that journalism will go forward. Uh, subscription model can bring in more money, but it requires having a good subscriber base. Ads uh, are very rewarding for someone who puts in the work, uh, but they can also have perverse incentives. Uh, so it's it's very hard to make it in journalism today. It's it's easy to get involved and to dabble your feet, but actually finding a uh, you know actually finding a good uh, stable job is not very easy. So it's it's almost like the legal profession, I think. If you and of course the legal profession, if you make it, you make it much much bigger, but you have to really put in your work and then you uh, you kind of struggle and even after after you go through law school, you generally have to spend quite a few years doing a lot of grunt work. Uh, in journalism, the barrier to entry is, is low, but actually succeeding is very difficult. So I would encourage people if, and if you're a high schooler in particular, if, you're in, if you think you're interested in journalism, write quite a bit. Find a place where you can get published 
even if it's, you know, even if almost nobody's going to read it and just get into the habit of writing and, and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, I, I'd encourage you also to hold yourself to a high standard when it comes to publishing information, um, because I think a lot of journalism does not, unfortunately. And we, we really need to get to a place where verification and, and nuance need to be encouraged. But yeah, I, I would encourage, you know, those who are interested in journalism, try it. You know, the best thing for any job is to have experience. And you'll find a lot of entry-level positions when you first hit the job market. Entry-level positions will say they want two years of experience in the job that you're trying to get. Um, but, you know, it, if you're interested in journalism, try it, see how it works. Um, you know, g- give it a spin. There, there are a lot of local college um, college papers where you can get published fairly easily. There are local papers. There are some online outlets. Um, and r- really, really build up the ability uh, to write and write shortly if you can. Uh, get yourself concise to 800 words or less on any particular topic. And editors love it if your articles are short. <laughs> I think those are some great words of advice and uh, certainly something that students of all ages can practice. I know in our in our local context, we have uh, there is a local town newspaper in Rollsville, the Rollsville Buzz, uh, that uh, I remember years ago being at a job fair and they just had kind of like an open uh, you could get the editor's card and they would accept pretty much anything you wanted uh, or they wanted to send them. And uh, th- those opportunities do exist. I think opportunities for getting in print are few and far between, but opportunities to get work out there in the uh, in, in in an online space uh, those are those are pretty frequent. And I, I would definitely agree that the best way to learn how to write is simply to write and keep writing and revise and write again and keep writing again. Uh, that that becomes huge. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has been great. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Uh, oh, uh, real quick before we sign off, uh, Tyler, where can people find you online? You want to give your Twitter handle and all those good things? Yeah, so you can follow me at Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, to the numeral two, O'Neill, O-N-E-I-L. That's my handle. Uh, you can find uh, pjmedia.com. And if you search for the book, it's Making Hate Pay. Uh, it comes up first with when you search on Amazon uh, or if you search on uh on Google, it should be the first result. But yeah, the corruption of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Check that out and uh, yeah, give me a follow. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us today on this episode of What's the Res? Our guest has been Tyler O'Neill. We've been discussing the resolution resolved. Congress should repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And we've also added kind of a bonus discussion of the uh, last presidential debate before we go into what is without a doubt, uh, a very contentious election day on November 3rd. So uh, thank you for joining us today. If you want to send us any feedback about this episode, we accept uh, excited, hey, that was a great idea for my case. We also accept flames. So uh, feel free to send them <laughs> way. Uh, we, we take it all. Uh, if you liked this episode, please do leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, if you did not like this episode, please email us. Don't leave us a one-star review. Those are not helpful. But if you want to email us, you can do those at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit with the handle at whatstheres underscore. And then you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. 
Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.